this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This episode 327, we're recording on Thursday, August 22nd, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Kaczynski, coming to you from the very fine website, Book Riot. Zach, yeah. yeah it's not fair to make me laugh right before you launch into that. <laughs> it's working blue in the pre-show a little bit today. Not even after dark. No, it's just Thursday. No. Uh, it's not even noon. Just where a regular Thursday. I know eleven twenty-five. Um, you know, it's midnight somewhere. Um, listener feedback. Textbooks on audio. I asked this a while ago. I think the feedback started coming for this when I was on vacation, so I didn't get to wrap it up. Long story short, ain't none mm. in a traditional sense. There's some comments about. Some schools that have really good um, accessibility programs, you can have basically your textbooks read to you onto tape by volunteers cool. or you know, their accessibility, which is very cool. But in terms of just getting like, you know, uh, I'm just, uh, what's the, Pearson, right? Pearson, a big mm-hmm. educational publisher. Pearson just doesn't have audiobooks of World History 101 textbook you're using in your, your freshman lecture or high school or something like that. Um I don't know why these weren't production size people. These were supply side or a demand side people, both in terms of librarians and teachers and students. My guess is they're doing pretty well selling you $250 textbooks. Yeah. But I'd be curious to hear if we have any um, supply side birdies about, you know, this is surely it's something that's at least been considered in a different way now since audio consumption is way up across the board. You would think so. There haven't been meetings somewhere. Yeah, this actually sounds ripe for our old friend bundling. Like if (laughs) (laughs) if they if they don't want to and I get it, like, why would you want to sell somebody even if you priced up the audiobook for it being a textbook. Like, why would you want to sell them a $50 audiobook when you could sell them a $200 textbook? But what if it was a follow-on of like, here's your $200 textbook and either bundled in is the audiobook or for mm. 10 bucks extra, you can also right, right. get the audiobook. That would seem to me to be very useful, especially for like mm-hmm. complex subject matter where like looking at a diagram and hearing a voice narrate what's happening in the book might be very useful. Um, I certainly hope yeah, they've had know. this conversation. I don't know. I remember, I may, did I, I may have said this on the show, so I apologize for the repeat if I did. Um, one of my first college classes when I was really like, okay, I'm going to do really well and I, you know, I'm doing all the things. I had to memorize a bunch of genus, species, order, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing yeah. for a bunch of Kings animals. Kings play cards on fat green stools. Yes. There you go. You remember the <laughs> mnemonic. And I made a tape recording that I could just listen to while I was walking around. So I could, just as reinforcement, mm. like I'm walking to class, I got 20 minutes, I'm not going to be looking at the book um, for finals week. And I was just memorizing it and it worked. And it made me realize that 
I don't know if I'm an auditory learner primarily or, or what, or just reinforcement or just reps. It could have just been reps that I wouldn't have gotten in otherwise. Um, I'm not sure I would pick an audio over a text if I had to choose one, but audio as a supplement, I definitely would have thought about. I also wonder too, I know textbooks get rented so often and the publishers get cut out of that. Oh loop. yeah. You know, the, 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 after the first purchase of a textbook, it's, you know, all between the bookstore and the students and whatever. If some sort of, you know, okay, I, I rented the, or I bought the textbook used from my bookstore for 50, but I'd have to go buy the DRM'd audio version for 25. They could at least keep a finger in the pie of those ongoing mm-hmm. uses of those textbooks. You would think that'd be something interesting there too. So thank you all um, for writing back in there. There were a couple that said they had textbooks of uh, audio of certain books available on audio and they definitely used them. This feels like this is a big boat, especially educational publishing, to turn around. And even odd, even as we said, Catcher in the Rye still wasn't available on audio right. and is coming soon. So I'm not surprised that this uh, of the industries that are out there is the one that's trailing. Favorite movie adaptations? Not a lot of – got some feedback. Not, a, not enough to have many patterns. A couple that were mentioned – that um, I'll mention because I, I don't think of them. Everyone has their different, everyone has different movies that are their movies. Mm-hmm. Um, a Very Long Engagement is one that came up that I remember watching a while ago and really liking. The Book Thief came up. That is a book that I tried to read and I DNF'd because I could not get through it and I thought I would watch the movie. I got the movie on my DVD Netflix thing. I watched about 12 minutes and I was out. So I completely whiffed on this one. I'm sure mm-hmm. it's me. Um, and not the the very fine intellectual property, um, but those are a couple that came up that I hadn't really thought about. We got we got some ones you might expect the the, the two thousand Pride and Prejudices, two thousand the Kira Knightley one. Um, we got a lot of those uh, as a favorite. Godfather mentions, mm, um, mm-hmm. you know, not a lot of. I thought we might get more YA um, favorites, but we didn't. So that's interesting. I wonder I'm not if they... sure what the, the generally agreed upon best YA adaptation yeah, is. I don't know enough that's about That's a good YA question. Though. And it also seems like maybe yeah. YA adaptations, like the multitude of YA adaptations is relatively recent as an entertainment yeah. phenomenon. And something right, about maybe. being your favorite is this like, I go back to it over and over. Like maybe in mm. five or 10 years to all the boys I've loved before hits this list of, you know, very charming YA adaptation that could be very rewatchable over time or that you can like develop some attachment to, but most of the ones that you were listing have been out long enough for somebody to, you know, have watched them many times and have that feeling like, I mean, those pride and prejudice ones I think are the perfect example of like people who love pride and prejudice have read that book a jillion times and Mm. will go back to the well of watching the movie over and over and over. It becomes that like comfort read comfort watch kind of thing. Um, Maybe Mm. there just aren't enough, YA ones that have been around long enough. This is my theory. Yeah. It's interesting, too. I don't know enough about the history of YA on book or film to say definitively, but my spidey sense is saying that YA on film got rolling before they started ad- adapting them, just the John Hughes's of the world. Like, those were out there in the 80s. Yeah, and those yeah. were, to my knowledge, mostly based on books. So the, the recent spate of ones that I've seen that I've, I've enjoyed all of them, to all the boys I love before, Love, Simon, I thought was great. Um 
maybe as in and since we're in the golden age adaptations we're just going to get a lot of them and some of them will survive and, and some of them yeah won't. like the teen movie as a thing has sort of faded and the ya adaptation is stepping in to it uh, that's interesting but they they seem to be different beasts to me like that sort of 80s early 90s teen movie like clueless and can't hardly wait or the john hughes stuff before it um we don't really get those anymore mm-hmm. hmm. um yeah anyway um so if you've got uh, other things you want to send in for your favorite mood at movie adaptations we're still taking candidate uh subjects for future movie discussions so thanks so much for that all right time for news of the week but first let's do a sponsor okay <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story. So in Just Some Stupid Love Story by Caitlin Doyle, Molly and Seth were best friends turned lovers until Molly ghosted Seth on the eve of their high school graduation, which is very trifling, I might add. So now they've reunited again at their high school reunion 15 years later, and they make a bet. Whoever can predict the fate of five couples before the next reunion must declare that the other is right about true love. But what is the catch, you might ask? Well, the catch is that the fifth couple is them. Dun, dun, dun. So this is a callback to the best 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. If you like When Harry Met Sally or How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, this will be right up your alley. This is also perfect for fans of romance readers of Emily Henry, Catherine Center, and others like that. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Yin Press, your favorite publisher of Japanese manga and novels. Tragedy unfolds on the first day of spring when a train derails at Nishi Iwakahama Station, changing the course of hundreds of lives. Two months later, a rumor spreads of a ghost with the power to send others back in time, inevitably attracting those who seek a chance to go back to that fateful day. The God of Nishi Yugahama Station by Takeshi Morase is a moving story about the unpredictability of life. It aims to comfort tired souls and answers the famous question, what would you do if you had a second chance? Told through the eyes of a student, a son, and a bride-to-be, this heart-wrenching novel is a reflection of how grief impacts us and what we must do to pick up the pieces. Don't miss this literary debut full of fabulism and time travel by Japanese writer Takeshi Murase. To learn more, please visit yinpress.com. And thanks again to Yin Press, your favorite publisher of Japanese manga and novels, for sponsoring this episode. All right. Well, I mean, it's the story of the year in books, Toni Morrison's passing and uh, follow-up, follow-on. We'll probably get more of these stories. Notably, the one thing I'd hope to hear that we haven't yet heard, and maybe you've heard, is the, oh yeah, by the way, there is this person working on the giant biography. I have not heard, heard this. Yet. I have also not heard the, like, we found a secret trove of Toni Morrison's letters, and now you get to read them. I feel like Tomo has her on point. I have to bleep that. But yeah, I, I think don't so think too. it's, um, she seems like she had things on lockdown pretty well. I would... Now, there's always a K, there's always a chance that there's an alternate first draft um, of Beloved somewhere. Uh, do you want any of that stuff? We haven't talked about that either. Do no. you want the Mm-mm. Ghost at a Watchman of uh, Song of Solomon? I don't, because 
Well, maybe. If it were done, <laughs> okay, if I could have it in my ideal format, yes, because I think it would be fascinating and edifying and like educational to see like how did Beloved begin and where mm. Beloved ended up. And if there were like process notes in between, or I want to see like her notes and her editor's notes in the margins of the drafts of those books i would love to be like as a as someone who loves and has loved those books for a long time and i feel deeply connected to them and i've read most of them many times like getting to see how they came about would be wonderful um i feel like that's a job for like wherever the Toni Morrison archive ends up, some academic mm. library perhaps, I do not trust that in the hands of a publisher who would spin it as the prequel to Beloved. Mm. Um, like I, I, we got so burned. Young Margaret Garner. Yeah, we got so burned by the way that Ghost at a Watchman could have been and like how it could have stood in literary culture and versus the way that Harper Collins chose to package it. And I'm, I don't want to, you know, you can't fool me twice. I don't want to go there. Um, so from distrusting publishing, <laughs> I don't want like early drafts of things to be rolled out in that way. But as a reader, um, if I could encounter them in their like original or pure form without that wrap like without the like commerce and packaging and spin that publishing would probably mm. give to it i would love to see that i feel like there would really be something to learn from how did tony morrison revise her novels i wonder if there'll be a a bidding war i mean i'm sure there will be a bidding war for her papers or if the estate wants to make more of a i don't know intentional bequest mm. uh going to this place versus that way and this happens sometimes where a, a trove an archive will come up and there is like you know the michener center at the university of texas is deep pocketed and so they will outbid um things that they wouldn't get for other reasons princeton has or princeton morrison has a lot of affiliations with universities over time princeton i think was the last and probably longest but she also went and did her undergraduate at howard mm -hmm. and you could see that it could be in her will or the estate or whoever might say well that would be a meaningful gift in its own right. I know famously she wrote longhand and famously a rewriter. So theoretically, there is a biomass mm -hmm. of Morrison marginalia, drafting, alternate versions, whatever. I don't know. I don't. That's all I really have heard. I don't even know that much. I've heard yeah. that much. So there's there's quite the possibility for there to be an impressive record of the evolution, creation, afterlife, mm -hmm. back and forths on these works. Um, so that's always yeah, a possibility. There was too. a great piece, I think it was in the Paris Review, not too long after James Salter died by his mm. longtime editor about like when you are working with someone who is a master at the level that James Salter was a master, what, how do you even edit that person? What is that relationship like? What is the process? Like, what's your role? Um, and I feel like all of those questions are even more interesting and more applicable to someone of the like genius caliber of Tony mm. Morrison. How do you as an editor even come to a draft of beloved and feel like how worthy of the task of editing a book like that? I would love to hear her editor talk about it. 
Yeah, I think his, her longtime editor was Robert Gottlieb, who's one of the, if not the, you know, along with Maxwell Perkins, probably yeah. most famous, celebrated editors of the day. And the the way he probably approached it is he he approached he edited people more famous than Toni Morrison was when he started editing her. You know, you got to get mm-hmm. in right. early. So, you know, I would imagine it was something like that. Um, Gottlieb, a fascinating figure. His his uh, most recent memoir, he's written several called Avid Reader. It's a pretty interesting tour of late middle 20th century, you know, art writing um, in New York. Um, back to the story that got us talking about this. I don't even know how I... Oh, because print. <laughs> Not going back to print with extant Morrison books. They're printing another 225,000 total new Morrison books printed. Does that seem high or low to you? Um, mm. You want it to be more, I'm sure, but in the realm of what we know about the world, does it seem low, high, about right to you? I wish it were 7 million. Um, but I do, I think it's, I think this is a solid number realistically. Like Mm -hmm. it is more than the number of books that are sold typically after someone like wins the Nobel. I remember we saw the numbers like when Alice Monroe won the Nobel, the, um, the number of title, like the number of copies of her backlist that sold after that, like it really was not astonishing in the way that you would hope it would be. Um, so 225,000 spread across what 11 novels and some other over the next four months or something like that. I mean, I don't know. That's pretty good. I hope that I think that 225, especially when you consider right, that it's going to be probably a relatively short burst of heavy interest Mm -hmm. in Toni Morrison, um, because of just, you know, our cultural memory is short and we will move on to other you know, other people and other things that 225,000 is really good. I hope they all sell. Um, as we were Mm. talking about last week, like one of the best outcomes of this could be that people who are either only passingly familiar with Toni Morrison or only knew like the quotes from Instagram or who had never read her before will pick up these books and sort of carry that legacy forward. I think that's important and amazing. Um, Interestingly, her collection of like essays and meditations called The Source of Self-Regard, which came out last fall, um, just hit the bestseller list for the first time after her death. Mm. It came out um, at number 11 on the list of hardcover nonfiction. I've been like slowly... And I'm one of those, like I, um, hadn't bought it until, (laughs) until then. And I was like, you know, let's go spend some time in Tony's brain. Some of the pieces are, you know, 20 or 30 years old, um, shockingly, or maybe not still relevant to what's going on in our country (laughs) and politics today. Um, but just such an interesting thinker. Um, I hope that those will be widely read also. I thought the most interesting piece of this short post, I don't even know, Mm. blurb Mm -hmm. in Publishers Weekly was what the baseline sales were for Morrison, you know, the week before. Yeah. Um, So Beloved sold 12,000 copies last week after after the news came out that she had died. Okay, that's interesting, I guess, in itself. But in a vacuum, there's only so much you can do with that. But it sold roughly a thousand copies the week before, which mm-hmm. you have to think is sort of an average, maybe below average for August. I don't know. Yeah. In, in the fall, are, this is one of our big questions: Do people actually buy more books in the fall and spring when they get sold and marketed? That's a separate question. Mm-hmm. But say it's a representative month or a week, that's pretty good. And then the bluest eye also sold about 1,000 a week. Song of Solomon sold about 600 the week before. Throw in the, I'm assuming we're getting down the tail. 
I would almost think Paradise would sell more than Song of Solomon on a weekly basis, but some of that is, I'm conflating my own interest in the books um, with what I think they should sell. But all told, she's selling probably four or 5,000 copies a week of all of her books of Backlist. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting to think about it in those terms. Yeah, and then it's um, multiples at like the 6, 8, 10x level in the week yeah. after her death. That's a, a That's a fascinating measure. Um, and I do think these mm-hmm. are the ones that are also they're selling at this clip consistently because of not just backlist interest in Toni Morrison, she's perpetually relevant, but these are also the titles that are, I think most commonly assigned on syllabi beloved, the bluest eye song of Solomon, Sula, um, paradise. Also, you know, my favorite, but sits in Mm -hmm. an like interesting spot, um, and doesn't really get, you can read it by itself and you should, but, um, isn't usually presented in school as like a standalone title. Yeah, I guess um, Beloved, you know, I've seen a lot of people say, and I think they're right, you know, by acclamation, the signal achievement, the the top Mm -hmm. of the the very high range of of Morrison's work, that's the one that, you know, I think um, precipitated the Nobel Prize. You know, it's a lifetime achievement work, but that's the one that really pushed her over the edge. So that one gets, you know, rightly singled out. Bluest Eye, I think, next makes sense. It's the most accessible I think it's also short, which doesn't mm-hmm. hurt. Um, and then Song of Solomon third, it's long. It's also the middle period um, before Beloved. It was her most famous work. If asked, if someone says what order to read them, ooh, that's a good question. I, I would say I don't know. I don't know. Like it depends on how many you're going to read. If you're going to read one, do I pick Beloved? Is the, that's the one I always come back? People ask me this sometimes. Have mm-hmm. read Morrison? Which one should I read? And you would think beloved, but it's like, is that? I feel like that's a that's a that's a precipice to 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 ask someone yeah. to, to to jump onto. But then bluest eye feels not quite representing the depth. So I often recommend paradise as if you're going to do one, do paradise. That's I've said that before. Mm-hmm. I can get on board with that. Sharifa and I talked yeah. some about it, and I can't remember if it was offline or on the show about where to start and how the bluest eye gets assigned like to high school students. And that's really like the main character of the book is a young girl, but it is not accessible content. And some of it's really difficult. Mm -mm. Um, And that you and I have had a sort of long running thing about Toni Morrison that like, if you can make it all the way through a Toni Morrison novel, and you feel 100% of the time, like, you know, what's going on, like, something has gone (laughs) wrong. Like, there's, there's a certain, there's like a certain weirdness and a certain level of like, discomfort and confusion that should happen along the way. Ambivalence, ambiguity. Yeah, I think that um, I think Sula introduces that element in a way that the bluest eye doesn't like the bluest eye is the most straightforward um, of the novels. I think Sula is where you start to get the kernels of that like depth and dimension and the way that she's going to be challenging to her readers, not just in terms of the subject matter, but in the way that she tells the story. Um, And that shows up later in, especially in beloved and in paradise in really interesting ways. There's this sort of mythology and like a twist on the way that mythology comes out, but like that Sula has the stuff with, um, Oh, is it Shadrach and Suicide Day? Yep. And, you know, all of that. So you're like, what is this? And it happens. What is this? Yeah. <laughs> the, and it happens relatively early in the book. And like, you should spend a portion of the time that you're reading any Toni Morrison novel going, what is this? Um, and I think Sula brings that out first. 
Yeah, I'm not sad that people seem to be picking up Beloved. Oh if, no, you know, it's just I wonder if if they if someone had said you know try this one first and then Beloved. Like I wonder how many of them that haven't read Morrison before are picking up Beloved, unescorted, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's rough, man. I mean, there's no there's no getting around it. Like. I read it in a class for the first time, and I'm really glad I did, even though I'm not sure my instruction was top-notch, but at least some affirmation of, like, this is wild. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's something about picking up a book, you do it in isolation, you, can, you often pick it up with no historical or artistic context of any kind. And Morrison is not one of those books, Beloved especially, is not a book that t- teaches you how to read it. Like, it, it gives you a lot of credit for being able to handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think so I don't know. it's just a, I think it's a dangerous entry point if you want to potentially have an ongoing relationship with Toni Morrison. Right. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's a hard, Beloved is a hard first date um, yeah. to enjoy and to then like want to read the rest of it. I, I also think that she is an author that reading her novels in order, at least reading the first seven mm-hmm. in order does pay dividends of the development of the themes and the development of how she's telling a story. Um, there are like, you can, I think you can kind of draw lines from things that happen in Sula and the ways that like yep. women are presented and some of the sort of mystical mythological things to how that shows up several books later in paradise. Um, and that's an interesting evolution to track. Uh, we didn't hear a lot of stories about bookstores selling out of Morris and some of it seems like it was 10 X, but they were selling quite a few. So they have, they have stock on hand. Like she's a, mm-hmm. like uh, Alice Monroe, for example, I think we heard stories about people running out because they maybe had two copies of. Oh, I can't even remember the what's the no, most famous like, one. There's there's the one the hate ship friendship courtship. Yes, 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 yes. It's yeah. an old. It's a vintage. It's still it's still those like early '90s mm-hmm. vintage. Uh, yeah, spines, I can picture I think. the cover. I can picture it too. But they might have had one, and that's the only Monroe. Where your your run of the mill Barnes and Noble is going to have, I think, probably every Morrison title and a few copies, and of beloved a few editions. There's going to be the you know. There's the reprint hardcover, and then there's the movie version, and there's the original paperback, and there's a revamp paperback. So they probably had stock ahead, knowing if they keep 50 copies of Morrison around, they're going to sell through it in the next year. Mm-hmm. Well, they sell through it in a, in a week, and they can get more. Um, so I'm not sure that not selling out in this case actually meant anything necessarily, just because it's a perennial seller. That made me think of I often, you know, I look every week at the Publishers Weekly best-selling book list, which comes from BookScan, which they're drawing the information here from. And that's on a title-by-title basis. You know what I wanted to see is author-by-author, mm. not just just a whole, like, I think we would get a better sense of the big, big money people. Because we see, you know, Patterson makes like $350 million a year, and there's a bunch of books, but they stay on the bestseller list for a few weeks and they drop out. What you don't see is the other hundred titles that are selling a thousand copies a week. Right. You just don't – so in a way, I think it's a disservice to – not a disservice. It it's represents differently to think about authors as the locus of selling rather than title by title. Mm-hmm. And certainly title by title gives you a snapshot of that week. But that's kind of like looking at weather where I'm interested in climate, I guess. Like I don't want to know what today's weather is. <laughs> I want to know what the climate of this particular location is. Um, so that's another one where um, someday when we have our Publishers Weekly – or our BookScan account, maybe there's a filter by – by author, and I'd be, I'd love to see. Hmm. I bet there'd be some surprises, um, but I I don't even know what what they could say. Um, none of them are knocking out Crawdad right now, but that's that's no. a separate podcast episode. Oh. 
Well, all right, Martin. I don't, Rebecca. What? <laughs> I saw. I ha- am I, saw I trolling this article, you just by putting this? I in saw the this article this week, and I wasn't going to put it in the agenda. And lo and behold, <laughs> I, I guess Martin gets the Duh George Award for this <laughs> s- statement. I don't think the TV show is very good for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I guess I'm glad you got there. Um, wow. Yeah, he's, uh, so what, what did you think was interesting about this? Well, I think it's, we've gone back and forth about like, will he actually finish the series? And I think that the like widely accepted speculation about that is, if he was going to, he couldn't do it while the show was on. And so mm. for him to, to, for him to just be saying out loud, the thing that we've all been feeling of now that the show is over, I think I can actually finish these books. Like maybe there's a shot for me now. And to talk about um, that there was, there was so much pressure of the show um, moving through the books. And he's, he even says like, there were a couple of years where if I could have finished the book, I could have stayed ahead of the show for another couple of years. And the stress mm-hmm. was enormous. I don't think it was very good for me because the very thing that should have speeded me up actually slowed me down every day. I sat down to write. And even if I had a good day and a good day for me is three or four pages, I'd feel terrible because I'd be thinking, my God, I have to finish the book. I've only have, I've only written four pages when I should have written 40. Um, and now that the show is over, it's freeing because he can go back to his own pace. So like trying to write against the ticking clock of being ahead of the show. And then ultimately he didn't succeed in that. The show got ahead of him, probably coping with that was its own interesting uh, mental shenanigans. So I, I think this is probably good news for Game of Thrones fans who want the George R.R. R. Martin version of the ending and who want to see the ending of the books that at least he's in a place where he is like looking at how this happened and what happened and acknowledging that like the writing was not going the way the writing needed to go for these books to get done while the show was occurring. Yeah, though there's spinoffs <laughs> coming. So mm-hmm. does that does that help or hurt? I can certainly imagine that once it became clear that he was going to lose to the show, so to speak, in terms of mm-hmm. getting the next book out, then it's like, why hurry at all? Like, if you're not going to beat it, does it matter if you lose by six months or two years? Probably not. In fact, yeah. probably some air between the show ending and the next book coming out is better than it coming out the day before, you know, like some really mm-hmm. wild... Um, you know, synchronicity of things coming out. It can give it some room, let the show be the show, and the book can, in, in a way, the book can now finish not on its own terms, but not clouded by the simultaneity of the show being a thing. It can have its own life as having its own ending, and they're going to be similar and what else it might be. Um, but until until we actually see progress, I, I can't look at another George interview self-help talk <laughs> <laughs> and think it's anything more than it makes him feel better to say today is the day I'm going to get my my stuff in order. Yeah, you know, um, I think though that the interesting piece here is that like he didn't actually start writing any faster. Like he kept his you yeah. know a good day is three or four pages, but how you feel about your usual pace matters, mm-hmm. and it seems that like a good day didn't get to feel like a good day anymore because right. he still felt so far behind the show that like, if we're, what we're really talking about is like morale 
and yeah. well, his morale is better. I think, I, I don't know much about Buddhism, but one of the things I think I picked up is the idea of the second arrow. It's not the first arrow of whatever happened to you that's the most painful. Mm-hmm. The second arrow is how you feel about that thing that happened. Um, yes. And man, sometimes you can, managing the second arrow is more difficult than managing the first. And it sounds like managing the second arrow of his own desire, expectation, anxiety about the books coming out was more of a hindrance than the shows themselves, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is not a surprise. I think that that's, that line fits a lot of the data we've seen mm-hmm. uh, to this point. Um, I don't know. I hope it gets done. I don't know what else to say at this point, but I, I consider myself well and duly trolled. So thank you uh, for that. <laughs> Look, if you don't want to talk about a thing on the show, you just have to tell me. Right. Let's talk about something I really want to talk about, like Me Too and publishing contracts. But first, let's do a sponsor and then we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in Alternating Viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris, is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips. So Louise Manson is the newest student at Highfield Manor, Dublin's most exclusive private school. Behind its granite walls are high-arched alcoves, an oak-lined library, and the dark secret Lou has come to expose. So Lou's working class status makes her the consummate outsider. That is until she is befriended by some of her beautiful and wealthy classmates. But after Lou attempts to bring the school's secret to light, her time at Highfield ends with a lifeless body sprawled at her feet. Then, 30 years later, Lou gets a shocking phone call. A high-profile lawyer is bringing a lawsuit against the school, and he needs Lou to testify. Lou will have to confront her past and discover, once and for all, what really happened at Highfield. Powerful and compelling, When We Were Silent is a thrilling story of exploitation, privilege, and retribution with themes of revenge, love, power, and secrets. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips for sponsoring this episode. Back to that. Okay. This one is an in, of the infuriating <laughs> stories mm-hmm. I've read about publishing contracts. This has to be up there like it is it, again yeah. it's not drag queen story hour having protesters it's like not, not on that level it's very personal because it's you know um maggie haberman and this particular title but like the injustice feels so like it I don't really know, kafka-esque at some level yeah it is it's i think kafka-esque is the perfect word for it this is definitely like unintended consequences of like contract law mm-hmm. and of um 
in this case, a publisher or a business, like sticking to the letter of a policy rather than looking at the spirit of it. So the TLDR of what happened here is that Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush were working on a book together, an insider's account of the Trump presidency. They were working on it for Random House. Um, the book is no longer happening because Thrush was kicked off the project by Random House after he was accused of sexual misconduct. Um, he was suspended from his job covering the White House for the New York Times following an internal investigation. Um, Random House decided to move forward with the book, but not with him. And since he was like released um, from his contract, but the book was continuing, he got to keep his advance. Um, Maggie Haberman was going to like look for a new co-author or try to figure out a way forward and has ultimately determined that she's not going to proceed with the book. Um, so she backed out of her contract and you know, like, let's hang a full lantern on it. She is backed out of her contract because her original co-writer was accused mm -hmm. of sexual misconduct and can no longer be her co-writer, but she is backed out. And so she's expected to pay back her advance. So the like end result here is that the guy who did the bad thing gets to keep the money. And the woman who was affected by it in terms of this deal has to give her advance back and also doesn't get to publish this book that she was working towards because of his actions. Yeah, it's, you know, about as unfair as you could ever uh, dream in a nightmare for Haberman. Look, she's going to go sign a contract with someone else to write a book. I'm, I'm you know, there's, there's a part of it, it's like, okay, whatever, value over replacement deal. But it does seem especially, <laughs> I don't know, lemon juice on the cut mm -hmm. to have to give the advance back, even though they didn't write the book. And because they dropped him, not him pulling out, which is what she did. It is different. I get that. Don't at me. But still, <laughs> I can't help feeling that while the letter of the contract mm -hmm. was enforced, the spirit of not being jerks about it was, was transgressed Yeah, here. Like, like Random House hasn't done anything technically wrong here. No, they're, no. they're doing exactly what they're allowed to do in the terms of a contract. But I would argue this is ethically wrong, um, that she is paying like financial, literally paying financial consequences for a situation that she wouldn't be in if not for Glenn Thrush's behavior. Um, and there are real career consequences as well. I think you're also right that she will like someone else will give her a book deal to either cover the Trump presidency or to write about this whole thing, um, having her career derailed by me too, or something else that she's going to cover. She's a great writer. Like there will be um, future career for Maggie Haberman. I think she's going to do just fine in the long run, but like that should not soften our reaction to that this is a crappy situation that surely like if someone at random house wanted to take a beat about they could reassess well, that's what i'm th i'm thinking just from a pure pr point of view i don't know what her advance is i'm guessing it's big like a big advance mm -hmm. random house however is really big like yep. i would let her keep it just keep the yes. advance go write some other book to i don't want the story i don't want you and i talking about this story on a Dumb little podcast about books that some people are going to listen to. I don't want this on BuzzFeed. Just it's worth a million bucks or whatever it is mm -hmm. not to deal with this, let alone the fact that spirit of the law, whatever, I, if I'm Random House, I dropped her co-writer and I'm expecting her 
to go ahead and write the book? Like, that doesn't seem right. Like, if he no. got to keep the advance, she should get to keep the advance. That seems right. Now, I'm sure the contract stipulates that blah, 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 something. Glenn Thrush gets hit by a bus. Right. You're still on the hook for the advance because you're still on the hook for the book. You're not going to write the book. We take the advance back. Seems fair on its face. And in normal circumstances, you don't write the book. You don't get the advance. That's standard operating procedure. But come on. I just I just can't get around this unless I'm sure there are things we don't know, but on its face it does seem so baldly like a slap in the face to the whole idea of me yeah. too and covering it. That it's <laughs> yeah, almost maybe, it's almost you can't write it up. It's almost like an O. Henry story yeah, about and writing maybe this, about injustice. <laughs> yeah. This contract very likely predates the breaking of yeah. Me Too. And mm-hmm. there and I don't know that publishers have started modifying contracts post me too, but we've talked extensively on the show about wanting there to be a way for publishers to get out of a contract for you know morality clauses functionally. Um, so if the if the spirit of whatever clauses in this contract about should something happen to one of you where you're not able to complete the book, the other one will carry forward um, is very much probably about if Glenn Thrush gets hit by a bus, Maggie Haberman will continue. I don't think anybody went into that contract thinking, well, if one of you gets accused of misconduct and we have to fire you to protect our publishing house, mm-hmm. like to protect our business, we have to take you off of this book. What is going to happen to the other person it's this is just such a bad look and like i don't believe for a second that penguin random house doesn't have a way to modify this or to make it better if they wanted to like the justification of this is the way the contract is written and so that's what we're doing like is okay it's factually true um but i don't find that to be defensible here we've talked about clawbacks before advances and we actually Again, my memory of it is in those stories we've often been told, talked about, had note given that sometimes publishers will just eat in advance if a book never happens. Like it's not worth mm-hmm. the legal fees to try to get it yep. back. It's not worth the the damage to the author-agent relationship to try to claw back. Again, if she got a $5 million advance, maybe that crosses the line of it's worth giving a crap about doing it. I don't know. But it certainly isn't unprecedented for someone to keep an advance for a book they never write or to get some right. of it or something else. It, it just does seem patently and baldly it's, crappy that, like, it, that, that this just, is what's happening. And it's like such a failure of imagination or anticipation on the publisher's part of how this was going to come out and look. Like, yeah. first of all, of course, this it's going to come out. And there's no way that you are the publisher here and you look good in this situation where the guy who allegedly committed sexual misconduct gets to keep the money and the woman who's functionally losing her job because of him has to give the money back. There's just no way to look good there. It's a PR nightmare. Nightmare. And like you, now you're on now BuzzFeed News is writing exposés about you. So entirely preventable. Definitely who I want to make mad is Maggie Haberman. That always feels right. smart. <laughs> like the, <laughs> one of the best How about the investigative reporters of our time. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're giving someone a public screw job, make sure it's Maggie Haberman. Smart. That's how I would play this too. Uh, let's do one more news story than Hero of the Week. Um, we're, we've stopped covering a new Amazon bookstore opening up because it's just kind of, I don't know, boring. 
it's happening. You know, it's neither exciting and it's blowing up, nor is it contracting and looking like an egg on the face failure for Amazon, which some are dearly hoping for. But this one, um, speaking of like sort of symbolic moves, mm-hmm. I guess, as much as anything, a new store is opening in Nashville, Tennessee, an Amazon bookstore right across the street from Parnassus Books, which is one of the... I don't know, 10 or 15 nameable indies, would you say? I don't know how long that list is. Like, it's a book that people, mm. it's a bookstore that people that don't live in Nashville might know about. Yeah. And part of the reason of that is Ann Patchett is right. part owner. Patron local, saint of indie bookstores. Yeah. Patron, patron author saint of independent bookstores. Doesn't hurt that she owns an independent bookstore. Vocal critic of Amazon, vocal advocate of independent bookstores. Um, I don't know if, again, at some point, Amazon's opening bookstores, there's going to be one across the street from a notable indie. I, I don't make much of this in the book rights. Like some people thought it was intentional. I don't really read it that way. It's just, I, for me, it's like when it's raining, sometimes it falls on some house. It's going to fall on all the houses eventually if a storm is moving through. Um, but tell me why I'm wrong or why I'm right about that. You know, I... I I'm not sure. I don't think it's intentional per se. Like it's going the new um, Amazon bookstore in Nashville is going into like a 4,600 square foot shop in a mall. The mall is across the street from Parnassus Books, so it's not like Amazon bought like just a standalone building across from Parnassus. <laughs> it just like mm-hmm. the mall is across the street from the bookstore. Surely, at some point in the process, someone at Amazon became aware that they were putting this store across from a well-known independent bookstore like Amazon is smart. They do their research. I think someone probably noticed and decided they didn't care. Um, It's being read by many people as like a middle finger from Amazon to Parnassus or to independent bookstores in general. I don't think there's that level of intentionality to it. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think they care. I don't think they care. I don't think they do either. Um, And I think that's what it is, is like Amazon does not have time to go searching for spaces across the street from independent bookstores. They've got guys doing market research about where can we put a bookstore? Like what are the demographics of different neighborhoods where people will go shopping and buy books? And to that end, like a neighborhood in a city that can support a thriving independent bookstore has people of a demographic that are going to buy books in the mall and we'll probably buy them like some of them will be happy to buy them at a discount because they can afford to pay full mostly full price for them at an independent bookstore but that leads me to my primary reaction to this which is that there has been a lot of like hand wringing this week in literary press about like that amazon is these amazon bookstores are such a threat to independent bookstores and i want to say i think that amazon as a threat to independent bookstores is a separate beast from the amazon bookstore as a threat to independent bookstores like amazon as an entity absolutely and undeniably a threat to independent bookstores and has already caused like documented damage of stores closing as Amazon opened and became a big deal. There's no arguing about that, but we have not yet seen a situation. I think this will be the 20th Amazon bookstore in those first 19 of them. Like none of the first 19 Amazon bookstores have put an independent bookstore in the same city out of business. Like they're, I don't think they're competing for the same customers for the most part. Someone who is a loyal independent bookstore customer knows what that 
knows what being a loyal independent bookstore customer is about and is likely not going to be, you know, drawn into the Amazon bookstore. I think they're competing for different or they're going for different segments of the market, but there's also just no precedent for worrying about it in this particular way. Like granted, this is the first time that an Amazon bookstore will be directly across the street from an independent bookstore. So maybe this would be something different, but also like if any indie bookstore can stand up to the threat of an Amazon store being across from it, even if it's a threat, which I don't think it is, it would probably be a store on par with Parnassus. So that's my, <laughs> these are all of my sense. My yeah, two sense I think you're some. right. I think you're right on all counts. I mean, this is about demographics, not neighbors um, yeah. really here. And I'm sure the mall has a lot of characteristics that Amazon books have like the ones I've seen are in very, very upscale malls. The one I've seen in mm-hmm. Portland, the one I've been into in New York, they're in very, very upscale places. And it, I think it just so happens that they found a space that fits their algorithm of where they put these things. Um, and it made no difference at all that Parnassus yeah. was there. I think it's more that they happen to both be in a similar location for similar reasons mm-hmm. than Amazon's going after Parnassus. Now, if this turns out to be a Fox Books shop around the corner situation and in a year and a half Parnassus closes its doors – we will have a different conversation, <laughs> I think, about this, and the tenor of that conversation will be very different all over the place. Um, but I just don't see that. It would be unlike Amazon to care about this. Like, if you were going to do this, why not put an Amazon bookstore across the street from Powell's in downtown Portland? Why not put one across the street from the right. Strand in um, Union Square in New York, not on 59th Street in Columbus Circle in the giant frickin' Time Warner shiny tower? or in this upscale mall in the burbs of Portland, if you're going to go head-to-head, go head-to-head with, like, big Mm -hmm. stores. Parnassus, if Parnassus went out of business tomorrow, it wouldn't affect Amazon one iota. So then it would just be sort of spite, I guess, which, say what you will about Amazon, they don't operate out of spite. They operate out of characteristics a lot of people don't like, but I don't think spite is among them. Yeah, and I think the shop around the corner analogy here is a really apt that like we've all seen You've Got Mail and Joe Fox does not spend a lot of time thinking at all about whatever Meg Ryan's character's name is in that movie. Right. Like Kathleen Kelly. In the story. Right. Yes, Kathleen Kelly. I knew that you would do like you would mm-hmm. come through on the Meg Ryan knowledge <laughs> here. Like independent bookstores spend way more time for very valid reasons thinking mm-hmm. about Amazon than Amazon spends thinking about independent bookstores. And I kind of think this is a case of like, you know, your mom telling you, if you knew how little other people think of you, you wouldn't worry <laughs> so much right. about it. That's right. <laughs> like, That's right. Like Amazon is not devoting time to thinking about independent bookstores. I don't think Amazon even actively wants to take down independent bookstores. No. They just want to dominate the market. And a side effect of dominating the market is that independent bookstores are affected in the same way like i always go back to the hardware store example amazon doesn't want to put mom and pop hardware stores out of business amazon just wants to be the one to sell you a hammer and if mom and pop can't compete then like amazon thinks that's just the consequence of the fact that they're better at selling you hammers or more efficient if they really wanted to hurt a competitor with store location they'd put them next to barnes and nobles right yeah hero of the week tell me about the hero of the week (laughs) gotta get a palate cleanser for that so this is like a part celebrating heroes of the week and then also an opportunity for someone to become a hero of the yeah, week. Back in go. 
Back in 2011 in Cincinnati, two um, eight-year-old twins put their heads together and created a nonprofit called Adopt a Book. They're named Hannah and Alex Lehman. And since then, they have spent their years collecting new and gently used children's books that they distribute to Cincinnati schools where kids might not have access to books in their homes. In the last eight years, they have collected and distributed over 160,000 books. Now, Mm. they were eight years old in 2011, and now it's 2019, and it's time for them to go to college, and they need to be able to focus on those new responsibilities. They, With their school commitments and extracurriculars and getting ready for college, they cannot run this themselves anymore, so they are looking for a successor, for a kid or a group of kids, like they were when they started it, to take over the Adopt-A-Book nonprofit. Um, if If you're interested in learning more about it, especially if you're in or near Cincinnati, you can check out the link in the show notes and you can also visit it online at adoptabookohio.org. So hopefully um, this will get to continue. Hats off to kids who started this when they were eight and have stuck with it for almost a decade. That's really impressive. Good job, Hannah and Alex Lehman. And um, may the efforts of whoever succeeds you succeed. That's our show. You can email us, podcast at bookriot.com. Find show notes to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com. Slash listen, our next episode will be the first of the fall, I guess. The, you turn September, I call it the fall. Don't don't at me about <laughs> vernal or uh, autumnal equinoxes or whatever we're supposed to do. But then after that, have we talked about this? Have we told people officially this is happening? We have Should not. Should we do it now? No, yeah, I guess, I guess that's what we're doing now. For the fall, which ends by my calendar on November 13th. <laughs> <laughs> for reasons. For reasons. We're going to do two episodes a week of this in this feed, but not of this show. So your regular Sunday night, Monday morning, we're gonna do a regular show where we talk about what's cool, new, and we're talking about the world of books and reading. But then on Wednesday night, Thursday mornings, we're gonna have a second episode, and that second episode is gonna be a range of things. So the Da Vinci Code book book nerd movie club was a kind of a test, kind of for fun. We're going to do a couple more of those, one per month, September, October, November. I can tell you this. Should I tell them the September one right now should be a surprise. People like to listen and watch yeah. along. Tell them. Tell the people. Amanda and I, Amanda's going to join me for the Hunt for Red October movie book combo review. I'm in the middle of reading the book right now. I've got one pre-note about this. The screenwriters for the movie are geniuses, mm. unheralded geniuses. I'll talk more about that. That's what we call it, tease. <laughs> We're going to do that. We're going to do, what else can we tell them about? We're going to do a a big um, fall preview episode where we sort of buy, sell, and hold the big books of the fall, whether or not we think they're going to do well, be well received, Mm -hmm. are they going to make a mark or not, I guess, to be usefully vague about it. We're going to read some books that are, some of those big books, we're going to read them and talk about whether or not they're good. We're going to do retrospectives of some books that came out that have notable anniversaries. Um, So we're really excited to try it. We've had a really good time thinking about the episodes. We'll have some guests come on, both inside the show and outside of it. Um, looking forward to it all the time. We want to make sure that you know. We want to hear from you. If you liked a particular segment, um, you liked a particular idea, you have something that maybe could make it better, please feel free to email us at podcastatbookriot.com, and I will respond even just to say thank you so much for listening. Um, so you're going to hear more from us. Long story short, TLDR. Going to be fun. We'll talk to you. In the fall, which starts September 1st, according to the calendars. Yes. All right. Talk to you later. (laughs) Have a good one. 